I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. Mike, did you see Captain America Civil War? I did. Okay. I You ready to talk about it? Uh, yeah, I love the huh. crap out of this movie. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that it's less of a standalone movie than other ones that they've done before. It's basically Avengers 3. It's Avengers 3. Yeah. It's also, it is Captain America 3 and Avengers 3 because it's a sequel to both Captain America Winter Soldier and Avengers Age of Ultron at yep. the same time. Yeah. And... For as many characters that are in it, it never it never feels crowded. And that's the part that I think mm. is very hard. Mm. Ant-Man feels a little bit one too a little one too far. You know I, what I'm saying? Like like uh, Captain America just like he's going to recruit the B team and like the last guy on board is like, oh, we kidnapped, you know, Paul Rudd and threw him in the back of our van, and now he's here, and he's like, fuck it, I'm here. <laughs> I thought he was a lot of fun in that he gets a lot of cool moments. It was fun, yes. And it's the use of Spider-Man and – I think Spider-Man and Ant-Man, being the both bug-related superheroes, <laughs> um, both got exactly the right amount of screen time, that they got moments – even to the degree that we got to see them get a little bit of an arc, but they knew when, okay, their part of the movie is done now. Uh, this is really a movie that's between Iron Man and Captain America. Now, this is that thing. And that and there comes a point where we just have to sort of sweep the other fun stuff aside and go, let's keep refocused on the, the real conflict at the heart of this movie. And Yeah, and, and unfortunately, the giant action set piece battle in the middle of the movie kind of distracts from that a little bit. I loved it, though, I mean, so much. Uh, it is the okay. first time that I've seen the heart of Marvel Comics get just spewed out on top well, of the, the well, screen. For that, that reason, it was impressive. For that, I mean, and Sam is just like looking confused. Like, and, or, At and this or point, if you apathetic. wanted to hide the plans for like a secret space-based laser from me, <laughs> you put it in that movie, and I'll never find it. Because we are in, yeah, we're in shit Sam doesn't care about volume eight. <laughs> All I'll say is that, uh, that I, I think that my favorite Marvel Cinematic Universe movie was Winter Soldier. Winter I mean, Soldier is great. Um, uh, not only because it really uh, it really polishes the Captain America character, sells that earnestness, and makes an espionage movie, basically an espionage movie, which is uh, among my favorite types of movies, um, and gives you know gives some a third dimension to Captain America. Um, the, it makes the character incredibly relevant too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but in this one, it was definitely like, well, this is the loose threads of Winter Soldier. We're moving it into this movie. I think the unfortunate part about this is that um, Captain America is just wrong. In the same way that um, Tony Stark is clearly wrong, 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 wrong in Age of Ultron. He's I, uh, Tony Stark is totally fucking wrong every time. No one calls him on it. Everyone just lets him do what he do, does what he wants to. And by sheer happenstance, Vision happens and and saves the day. Vision is, happens on accident in that movie. Yeah. Um. And it ends up working out for the best. It's one. Now of the we're old, talking about Age of Ultron. Age yes. of Ultron. Okay. Sure, I don't care about Volume they're, Seven. They're, okay. they're basically the same movie. But um, the thing that I I like with it is I actually. I think they did a good job of making both Captain America and Iron Man right to some degree, yeah, but wrong yes. in other ways. Yes. Because that's really what it kind of comes down to is do you make the conflict between the two of them organic and earned? Or is it there to just be spectacle? I mean, the spectacle is always going to be there. Yeah. But um, the stances that they took were earned, the places that they went. And the thing that I love about this and the use of Tony in this movie is that I think that the thing that he's trying to do is prevent something worse from happening. That he's right. like, okay, uh, the days of us not having any oversight is over, and this is going to happen whether we like it or not, but if we go along with it, we have some amount of control over what we do. That we can have a say in how this is done to us, because it's going to be done either way. The uh, thing that happens at that point is Captain America is clearly not going to go along with this, because he's like, well, no... 
people have agendas. What if there's a scenario where we desperately want to intercede, but it's not the sort of thing politically that all of these people with agendas want us to do? Right. Or what if they tell us we need us, they need us to go somewhere that we think is straight out wrong? And that part about it is right. And if you notice, until the framing of the Winter Soldier, Bucky, Captain America probably would have just retired at that point. Right. That he would have been unhappy and still said, hey, you have my phone number if you ever need my help, but I can't be a part of this. Right. Because I've kind of seen the government get taken over by supervillains twice now. Yeah, a few times. (laughs) Yeah. So I can't trust this. I I will say that that's, you you want to know the part of the movie that I was on the edge of, I was literally on the edge of my seat, The, the conference room scene where they're being presented with the Sokovia Accords. That was in the self-same way that you described in our TNG panel, that it's amazing when, as a writer, you can create a scene where it's just different characters talking, and they're they're all talking about the same thing. They can introduce the conflict. They can work out the conflict of the central problem, as well as represent each character's role in the conflict very well. That scene was incredible. Mm -hmm. That scene was really... I was like, how do they do people talking around a table really well in this movie when clearly the the, the movie is a setup to being these all these people on around the table punching each other on the tarmac yeah <laughs> like and they did it incredibly well and very what, very well i love that they did a good job of making it so it was clear both with tony and with steve that neither of one of them wanted to actually fight right that they were both doing everything they could and it also separated Tony from the people who were actually behind this act. They also didn't make the act the work of a secret villain. They said it's still the government doing this, but there's another villain who's taking advantage trying to escalate right. it so that they do start fighting. Right. And they don't want to fight each other. They really don't want to fight each well, other. It's the point where <laughs> the government is like straight up, rather than bring Bucky in for questioning, they're like, we're just going to murder him. And that's what makes Steve get involved, which is he wants to save the life of his friend. I, I, I'll say, though, that here's the thing. I think they I think they ran astray. The thing that you and I both love the most about the Steve Rogers character about Captain America is um he's finally a guy who can wield power responsibly, right? He's mm-hmm. he's the he's the antithesis of that story where you can never trust power, someone's always going to be corrupted. Um I think he's wrong, wrong, wrong. He ends up he ends up being uh right about defending Bucky um by complete happenstance. You know what I mean? He only finds out later that it was someone who framed Bucky for the for the murder, for the explosion, right? So he was wrong. He was wrong to defend him. So I finally and he, overcame- happened, he happened to be right. Go ahead. <laughs> so I finally overcame my fear and bought the new Faith No More album. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty great. No, what's, uh, what's Mike Patton doing these days? Uh, basically whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah. It seems like no. Uh, okay, seriously, something something Iron Man, something something Iron Man. Uh, dun, this seems dun, like a vindication dun, dun, of the dun. whole. <laughs> Of the whole uh, Civil War thing, because I remember my comic book friends in like 2004, 2003, talking about, like, like as it seemed like Marvel was just trashing themselves trying to make this this plot line work. It was a major event that took over the entire publishing line for like a year. Yeah, I don't remember anybody being a big fan of it. I think it was one of those things where they actually encouraged fans to fight with each other over who was right. Which on the internet is not always a good idea. No. It, it does bring out the, th- the other thing that the comic book did wrong is I think this is a good example of a really good movie and a story that's told really well made and based off of a story that was mediocre at best. Right. The comic book version of it not only made Tony Stark wrong, it made him so cartoonishly wrong because the idea of having some oversight for superheroes is a good idea. Um, the well, the only thing that makes it different is that people like Steve Rogers do exist in these worlds. Right. Um, the thing that you have to do to make Tony start start completely wrong is have him start, you know, throwing superheroes in a gulag in another dimension where their rights are completely thrown out. Oh, you're not on Earth anymore, so you don't have constitutional rights. We're well, gonna th- that, that I mean, to be fair, that was a kind of a question people were having in that part, and then the early 2000s. It was. I mean, having yeah. Guantanamo Bay happen in the negative zone, yeah. but also having it where a Thor who- in Wait, the wait. Co- is that the same as the Phantom Zone? It's not, not the Phantom Zone. I'm sorry, <laughs> the negative zone. The Phantom Zone, I think, that's the Superman one. Yeah. 
I'm saying, isn't isn't it just the same as the isn't Zod in the same place as Baron Zemo or whatever? When you all when he when he gets down to it, right? It's another just, dimension where there's weird craggy rocks and it kind of looks like a Yes album cover. <laughs> yeah. All right, now we're talking about Yes. Now we're in things I care about. Yeah. So yeah, you no. might like the negative zone then. But um, there's also an, an insect overlord that takes over large parts of it. So your prison may be attacked by a, a nihilist every so often. So that's a. Is that in the movie? We've got a bit of a bug problem. No. (laughs) Fucking Uh, fucking nihilists, man. Fucking nihilists, man. They believe in nothing. Um, I hate those guys. But yeah, the the thing that works is that they take out all of the really shitty stuff that you have to have these characters be used again. That's always the rule with a serial comic book character that you have to be able to tell a story in the future where Tony Stark is the hero. And they went so far making him an outright supervillain in the comics that it took years for them to fix that. The Tony Stark in and the And mo- didn't they fix it by just ripping it up and starting over? Pretty much. Yeah. The Tony Stark in the movie, though, is a good guy. Now, another question I have is, you are the only one I've heard say that there's a million characters in this movie, and it doesn't seem forced. I... I you 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 just objected to that a little bit, but that's what I'm hearing is a little bit of objecting to the insect brigade uh, in the movies is that they seem a, they they seem a little bit forced. Um, I mean, I, I, forest is a way to put it. I think that it's to me it was it's just a transparent like way for them to work work in characters that they're gonna for future Marvel movies. Yeah. Like, uh, but to, that said, I liked the Black Panther. Black- I thought it was good. I also thought that um uh that. Also, what was uncharacteristically Captain America is that if Captain America walked up to someone who is a leader of an autocracy, essentially, as benign as Wakandia is as an autocracy, uh, he would say, I don't find your go- your form of government valid. Right? Yeah. Wouldn't wouldn't Captain America wouldn't Captain America wouldn't Captain America refuse to support you if he knew that your you that you held your political power because of your of a hereditary monarchy and you had and you had absolute power in your country? Well, I don't think he'd be a dick about it. I think that he's not he a should a, be a dick about it. Yeah. <laughs> he should punch him in the face. It's like, what? You're a king? Punch! That's what America's about. We hate kings. Yes. No, I I think uh, Cap is always it's one of those things too. Monarchy is a little bit different in these sort of universes for the same reason that unregulated superheroes is a thing in these universes, yeah, yeah. which is that there are types of power that you can put faith in, right? which is a sort of faith you'd never put in any sort of real person because, be honest, people like Steve Rogers typically don't have jobs like Steve Rogers. Right. They're right. usually running like a non-profit somewhere, <laughs> and right. they don't have power that they can abuse. And um, you don't have the sort of problems um, with government being completely taken over Unless you're Alex Jones and you believe this, by an evil <laughs> secret organization that controls every part of it and also has kind of a cool snake logo. I mean, that just doesn't happen <laughs> in the you, real world. You don't you don't know this because you did not see Batman v Superman, but there is a moment where they're doing a uh uh talking head commentators on television montage of what Superman means. And you know, they had the they had, they had like the Anderson Coopers, they had Neil deGrasse Tyson doing way, way, way too much screen time that they missed out on putting Alex Jones on there <laughs> having some conspiracy theory about the New World Order headed by all-powerful space alien Superman. They really missed their chance. It's one of the few places where you don't have to have a bunch of assumptions for the conspiracy theorists <laughs> to get that far. Yeah. Whereas you have an actual alien right. with superpowers who can overthrow the government. That you don't have to make that stuff up with lizard men. That you're like, no, here's an alien that we all admit exists, and he really can punch a tank. Well, maybe they didn't do it because they knew that that was basically what was. You, you, you can't be a conspiracy theory in a movie unless it's not true. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. Is now right. now you're just making Alex Jones look correct, and I'm never ever going to be for that. That's the thing: is that in a yeah. universe like the Marvel or DC universes, where is there to go for <laughs> Alex Jones? Because there have been storylines in these comics where the president has been replaced by a double. Right, <laughs> that somebody can be mind controlled into attacking the president, and there might be a serious. A- significant population portion of the population that are lizard people yeah that is yeah. entirely possible yeah. there have been entire story arc events there was a story called secret invasion a few years back where half of the heroes were mine were basically a shape-shifting aliens that had taken their <laughs> place and it's like 
well, what is there to, that is outlandish wait, wait. in this world? Are, are you trying to say that Alex Jones has no original ideas and he's just taking it all from comic books? I he ra- might as well. He's, he's I rather a, assumed that was the He's just a huge thing. comic book aficionado, and he just like changes the names a little bit, and yeah, there he goes. Bob's that's, your uncle. That's actually one of my favorite things with conspiracy people, is when they start doing stuff, and I object to their stuff not on a basis of... Your arguments are not backed by evidence, but based on you're not even using your comic book mythology consistently, <laughs> and I'm objecting to it as a nerd. Like I think I watched, I was listening to Coast to Coast AM, which is one of the craziest radio shows. I love that show. And there was a discussion with, with the new guy or with the what's his face? It was the new guy. The new guy at this point. I, th- yeah. I forget what his name Nori? is. It's yeah, Nori. George Nori. Yeah. I think he's gone now, isn't it? Somebody else. I don't know, but George it's like Nor- it's like James Bond. No, nope, it passes along. Thing. Oh no, it's George Norrie uh, weeknights and then George Knapp on Sundays. So it's boring Fucking on George in. Knapp. Yeah, no. sure. Um, but yeah, they were talking to this guy who claimed to be a time traveler, and I start as I do with any story that involves time travel. I want to see if your time travel rules are consistent. Yeah, and it was clear that this guy was just ripping off time travel movies. He was ripping off. He said that he had been recruited as a kid, and it was like this weird mix of like. A little bit of Ender's Game, a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the other one, uh, Last Starfighter, <laughs> where he's being taken as a kid to fight some some horrible thing. Was he being was he being vetted through an arcade machine? Uh, <laughs> an arcade I, no, I think he just got kidnapped by the government. Oh. They threw a sack over his head, oh. and he was in a camp of kids that they were prepping, and it sounded like 12 Dar- monkeys. Like where the, they were or just, like Dark Angel? Yeah. Maybe? Yeah. So they were prepping these kids to go back in time and interact, with, and interact with the past and change things. And they were telling you, oh, well, you know, you have to learn about the butterfly effect and how you can't change history or affect things. And then another time he's talking about how you can't change things. You're just creating another alternate dimension. And if you jump back to the future, you're jumping back to your future and you don't get to see the outcome of that. And I'm like, then why didn't you fucking learn about the butterfly effect? <laughs> get your fucking time travel rules. And then he was like ripping off the movie Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve and said, oh, yeah, and I left this thing behind and I and I found this like penny later. And I'm like, no, you are ripping off a fucking movie. <laughs> and... That was the point where I sort of do that, where it's like, no, I recognize that from a thing. Your time travel rules are not consistent. What the fuck are you talking about? Uh, this just reminds me of the, the uh, you know, my favorite actor of all time, Jonathan Frakes, who, who is who is his character in the Gargoyles, the Disney Gargoyles animated series, was Xanatos, the kind of billionaire villain slash, he's not really a villain, he is kind of a villain. Um, he's a self-made man. He uses a, a magical artifact to go back in time to like the medieval period and finds a very rare Roman gold coin, leaves it in a hidden space for himself, and then when he's like a 20-year-old, finds it and invests it and then becomes like a multi-millionaire. So he's like totally a self-made man. He's like, I'm going to leave this coin for myself and then I'll be and then I'll, you know, then I'll pull my by my own bootstraps. He's like that's like the best way you can write an Anne Randian like superhero character. Yeah, that's I use time travel. Yeah. <laughs> so like the question would be then if you just took that that coin ahead in time with you, would people not believe it was a real Roman coin because it didn't mm. seem to be old they, enough? They couldn't carbon date it correctly. Because they were like, they'd be, you, they'd be like, this is twenty three years old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I would wonder about that. That you can't just bring that ahead in time and have it be valuable. And you also have to hope that a bunch of starving people didn't find that coin and use it to buy barley at some right. point. No, no. Xanatos was a member of the Illuminati. Oh. And he's put it in an envelope, and then they delivered it to him, like, you know, thousands of years later. Oh, the Marty McFly delivery. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Again, we're all rehashing old time travel movie plots. That you, you end up getting uh, that. And I'm that, actually surprised that they're, that Coast to Coast was still doing time travel stories after after the whole John T. Tour debacle in the... Late, You'll have to explain 2000s. this to me. I don't know. What um, it is. Guy showed up on an internet forum. I'm not an expert on it. Guy shows up on an internet forum, uh, saying I'm from, uh, I'm from the future. I'm sent back to buy a rare uh, IBM computer because of the 2000 year 2038 problem. And, oh yeah, 32 bit numbers. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, that's a story in itself. Um, also magical. Um, <laughs> and he had pictures of him of his time machine in you know in like a Dodge truck or something. Yeah. And uh, not in a DeLorean. Yeah, not a DeLorean. <laughs> um, and he came from a future where uh, it has it now has a lot of the same problems that the Star Trek universe does. Uh, which is if we were in the Star Trek universe, you and I would either be dead or drugged up super soldiers. 
Oh, we're, we're talking, <laughs> oh, okay. we're talking about like Khan. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. There was a yes. nuclear war and he's in, <laughs> uh, and he lives in, in on a fort in Florida that used to be a university. Just, again, ripping off of, of old science fiction novels. You know, a little bit of Farnham's Freehold there, a little bit of uh, that other one over there. And, and he finally got called out on all this stuff and then he started backtracking. He says, well... I was taught about the butterfly effect, but blah blah blah, and they did the exact same thing they did, and so here they're doing it again. Yeah, it's always uh, okay. Thirty-two bit year two thousand thirty-eight problem is that the way we, we the way Unix machines, including most of your phones, count time is by counting the number of seconds since January first, nineteen seventy, and it rolls over that that and it's a thirty-two bit integer, which means it has a fixed length of like two point seven billion or two something like that, and it flips over in 2038 so it's like the year 2000 problem all over again so it was all this like little layer of verisimilitude over some really schlocky science fiction and uh any and it basically the whole story is is militia porn like the oh, militia yeah. guys were right oh of course yeah so we've got to stockpile food and and guard it with a shotgun yeah <laughs> which is a life that nobody wants to live so for a point five i i was figuring since it was podcast de la vista i was going to stick with uh arnold schwarzenegger related stuff uh, so that's what i came with no no it's... <laughs> <laughs> how do you like uh how do you like the the fact that he's getting like he's doing other things not not I love, Schwarzenegger I love it. I love it. Me too. It's real. I mean, if you saw, uh, fuck, what was the name of it? The one where he's the Texas like border sheriff, and there's like Last Stand. Last Stand. Yeah. You you know that um, he's really, really, really showing his age, mm-hmm. and uh, it's very, very hard for them to cut around the fact that he can't move the way he is. So when he's doing stuff like Maggie, which is something that I I'm saving to watch for when we're going to do it again, I'm intrigued by um, because it's him. Deciding that because of his age, because he cannot be the Terminator for very much longer, because he can never do Conan the Barbarian or Total Recall or Eraser or whatever, um, for him, he has to do different uh, sort of different stories. Um, like it's it's only going to increase his range, and I think I think as much as we will, we love to see Arnold doing everything that he um, wanting to do everything that he did in the eighties and nineties, we know he can't. Mm-hmm. He just yeah. can't be that guy anymore. I will say though, as sort of a perhaps a blueprint for what Arnold can do later. Um, uh, Creed, the latest in the Rocky series, was so fucking good. Was a, was a, was a perfect denouement to the Rocky character. Like, absolutely. Okay, Where, so no more Rocky movies then. I mean, they could have that Creed character, the Creed son character that, okay. my, that Michael B. Jordan plays. But it's like, it is the, it is the perfect cap, the perfect end. It's like the Days of, days of Future Past end to that arc. Where um, it wraps up everything you wanted to do in a satisfying way, treats the characters uh, in a respectful way, and gives you a sense of this character's over. We can move on, and I love the way that it ended. There's not a lot of movies that do that nowadays. They're almost afraid to do that because there's always a sense of we want to make more sequels. Mm-hmm. We want to do more things, and that's again. Speaking of X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men Days of Future Past has such a perfect ending to it that it feels like a good last X-Men story. I, I haven't seen that yet merely because I haven't seen it yet. I actually really liked First Class a lot, so I'd like to see what they do with it. They do such a great job of, of doing something that should not be possible, which right. is reconciling two eras of a franchise and fixing things that were shitty than wrong turns they had made. Which is the reason that First Class takes place in the 60s, is they wanted to separate themselves from things like X-Men Origins Wolverine and X-Men 3. They right. just wanted to just pretend it didn't happen. They fix that stuff, but they do it in a way that isn't like we have to stop doing actual storytelling and character work to do continuity worker. And they actually tell a good story that doesn't feel crowded, that still has a lot of characters, but there's only four characters that really matter. Mm-hmm. That really do more than that really are the big part of the plot and the themes of the movie. Because it looked like a movie in the service of a retcon. Is that they just need they needed a movie that could ma- fix all of these problems, so they made this movie to fix it. Yeah, it that and is it ex- did it did fix it. But yeah. it, okay. normally doing that is an unwatchable train. That's wreck. that was yeah. going to be my feeling. Is like this this is going to suck. This is going to be terrible. That was going to be my assumption too. Yeah. But it actually is good. It feels incredibly streamlined. It's a very very. Um, lean movie yeah. for 
how ambitious it really is and what it is trying to do, that it never forgets uh, what the story is or who the characters that have to make this decision is. It knows that Wolverine is a Marty McFly-type time travel character, that it's never about his arc. It's about the people that he interacts with. He's the audience interacting with the past. Mm -hmm. And when it's time to literally throw him out of the movie, they do. And they go, okay, now it's the time for the people who are era-specific to have to make this choice. So the whole reason I brought up the the Arnold stuff is that there's a movie that's not like an Arnold movie that I actually desperately want to see that's coming out this year, and it's called uh, 478. 478. Yeah, and it's it's about um, – okay, one of the things I don't talk about is there's this show called Air Crash Investigations that I watch kind of obsessively, um, and not for – not. Not solely because haha air crash, but um, <laughs> um, but not be- solely. Well, it's like it's like CSI or something like that. It's it's one of those crime scene shows, but it's more documentary than drama, and and it there's a big focus on like the engineering or social problems, and I and I kind of I get really into that. So I I watched the show, and it's like I I would watch it when nobody else was at the house, no in the house, and you know I didn't have it on my computer or anything like that. I, I watched it kind of furtively and obsessively until. Becky caught me watching it one day. And now she loves the show, too. That is not how I expected that to turn out. <laughs> um, I think that's actually the setup to a lot of Penthouse Forum letters. Too. Yes. It's like, yeah. it's like, I walked in on it, but I got into it. <laughs> yeah, that's basically how that turned out. Uh, but one of the worst episodes of that show was about a mid-air collision in, uh, in Switzerland, where a, uh, a freighter, a Boeing freighter, uh, has a mid-air collision with a Aeroflot flight with a bunch of teenagers on it. And uh, mid-air collision, everybody dies, including this one guy who's an architect and his his whole, like, all of his children are dead. And his wife leaves him. And then it it all happened because of an air, uh, uh, an air traffic controller uh, mistake. And so this guy finds out who the air traffic controller was and stabs him and kills him. Just in, just in the street, just walks up to him and stabs him. So this movie is about that, and Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing that guy. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And, I mean, he, the, apparently the story is the, the guy just goes completely to pieces. Uh, he goes from, like, I'm an architect, neat and trim, and da-da-da, to, like, bearded, scraggly, homeless-looking guy. Mm. And so I'm like, I really want to see it. I, like, I kind of don't want to see it because it's kind of a horrible story, but I kind of want to see this. I want to see I, what he does with it. I kind of want to see Arnold where he flies into action not – you know, together and awesome and powerful, but you see him kind of broken yeah. in that moment that he's basically going Paul Kiersey right. a bit, that a regular guy becomes a killer. And older Arnold, in a weird sort of way, because of his limitations and because he has to, by necessity, branch out, I'm getting really interested in the sort of stuff he's doing because he seems like he's getting more ambitious in the so roles too. he's choosing. I, I've said that my perfect, uh, you know, Arnold has been doing a string of these. I'm going to go back to my old franchises. He just did Terminator Genesis. He apparently they filmed, I don't know if they're filming Triplets, which is the twin sequel, which come on, guys, come on. What? Um, yeah. And then it's the, a real thing. King Conan has been on the docket for a long time, and I don't know if that's going to happen where he plays old King Conan and I assume there must be a son or something who knows maybe it'll be Jason Momoa I don't know um, <laughs> the thing that I've said that uh, that I don't I don't really care about him being King Conan I don't think I, I don't think I really want that um, what I would love however is for there to be a, a another Riddick movie where Arnold plays an elder Furian now that would be <laughs> fucking awesome that would be fun, and, and I think we've said before that, that would be that would be a movie for one person <laughs> that, that, that has an hey, audience well, of one guy. Well, let's uh, let's be honest. Let's be clear that all of the Riddick movies past the first one have basically been movies for David Tuhi, the writer director, and um, Vin Diesel. Oh God, Vin Diesel. Yeah, they, they, they just they just want to do this character over yeah. and over again because they because it's I guess it's um it's part of Vin Diesel's D and D fantasy I guess it's his 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 favorite Dungeons and Dragons character. By the way, fucking Riddick. That's that's a Radio versus the Martians uh, show to uh, to be to be you know to be determined. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Vin Diesel could also be an episode unto itself. Yeah. Vin Diesel is is I I like almost nothing that he's in. But he seems like such a not not an asshole. Seems he's like a, a nerd. He's yeah. such a nerd. He's a nerd. And, but like a uh, genuinely nice nerd. Speaking of things that he was in that I would love to have you watch, Sam, I think you would love The Iron Giant. 
Oh, okay. My, oh, dear Lord. That movie's a tearjerker. Oh. It's a, oh my God. <laughs> I, I remember we were talking, I had this this thing that I put out on it's Facebook. Like, it's like E.T. with a giant robot. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's It's incredible. Um, I put out this question on uh, on Facebook, and there was an answer somebody had, and it was Iron Giant, and I'm not going to spoil it because it's a, it's a spoil for the end of the movie, but it, it reminded me of the climax of the Iron Giant, which is such an incredible tearjerker, but it's almost like a tearjerker aimed specifically at me. <laughs> if it's like if a movie was was genetically engineered in a laboratory to make me cry... <laughs> and it it fucking works. It's oh my god! It touch it touches my button. The All thing right. it sounded good, no, and the more you talk about it, it's like I don't know that I want to watch it's, this. It's a, you know, it's a fantastic movie. It's an animated movie. Like mm-hmm. it's a it takes place in the Cold War. It happens yeah. during you know the height of uh, Cold War paranoia, and it's about a little boy who I think lives in Maine, and a giant robot crashes from outer space. Uh, it's damaged. It, it doesn't remember what its purpose is or what it's there for. And he befriends a little boy. And it's a lot of the movie is about identity and the idea that you may have been built to be a weapon, but you get to choose what you are. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, and and the link there is that the voice of the robot is Vin Diesel. It's amazing. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. It is such a good That's movie. That's the thing that Vin Diesel, Vin Diesel seems to like doing. Is uh, voiceover work of giant creatures <laughs> who, who have a heart? Things. Who yeah. have a heart? Uh, oh my god, he's good at it too. I mean, he did the same thing with Groot in Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah. where it's amazing how much of his performance is in the fact that he only has one sentence that he ever <laughs> says. I, it was amazing the number of people who came out of that movie saying, like, "Oh my god, Vin Diesel is amazing in that movie," and I'm like, "He's in that movie? Yeah, he plays Groot." Yeah. Ah, question. Yeah, and then <laughs> I, I really, I really did like that movie. I'm sorry, I don't like Chris Pratt. I do not like Chris Pratt. I think the movie, I think the movie succeeded on a lot of levels, but um, uh, fucking Chris Pratt. I like, like, I like, like Chris Jurassic, Pratt. like Jurassic World. Like I, 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 yeah. I cannot, I cannot help feeling like he is a, um, he is someone who's desperately trying to create trying to pretend like he's an, another character, but he can't be not be Chris Pratt. He's like a Christopher Walken, except that. He doesn't have as much charisma as Christopher Walken does. <laughs> Crazy's, Crazy's art is death, and he's about to make his masterpiece. Oh, I went back and I went back and watched that actually, Mike. I didn't. It, I didn't see Man on Fire for the panel, but I went back and I watched it. Isn't it incredible? Well, they 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 fucked up. They fucked up the ending. They should have kept the Dakota Fanning Murder? character dead. Yeah, I wish that they it had. was a cheap shot. I think they wanted to have a reason for him to sacrifice his life, um, and there really is no reason for him to do that other than I am a kamikaze plane flying at the mafia. Right, right. Um, the thing that I really love in Man on Fire is that it makes Denzel Washington the scariest motherfucker on the planet. Yeah. Um, he really is a great what, actor. What they say, they say that the guy who is the head of the kidnapping unit is better protected than the president of Mexico. And like in an afternoon, he's able to like kidnap him and destroy his motorcade <laughs> and then shove a C4 up his ass and blow him up. Oh, I love it. In the I, span of an afternoon. I love the scene before he fires a rocket launcher. He just kind of commandeers the apartment of an old couple because they're going to be right in the line of fire of when the motorcade comes by so he can just use their balcony to fire a rocket launcher. <laughs> and one of them says to him, it's like, you know, the Bible says you forgive. And he's like, forgiveness is God's job. I'm just here to set up the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, that is incredible. So it's that kind of movie. Yes. It totally is. Yes. Okay. Uh, have you, are you familiar with Man on Fire? I am not. It's a so, Tony Scott movie, so Ridley Scott's brother. Yeah. It's Top uh, Gun, Top Gun, baby. Top it's gun. a Denzel Washington vigilante movie where he is the caretaker of a little girl in Mexico City who, um, a lot of part because he had kind of let his body kind of go to pot. He is just a callous of a man who's just wallowing in his own pain yeah, and drunk alcohol. Drunkard, and, yeah. Mm. And uh, through taking care of this little girl and becoming her swim coach and becoming sort of a surrogate dad, he pulls himself out of being this sad, broken figure and starts to be a person again. But he's still kind of not as good as he was back in the day. She's kidnapped and murdered, and the safety comes off of Denzel Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and he cuts a fucking bloody path through Mexico City, <laughs> killing so many goddamn people. 
Uh, there's a scene where he kidnaps a mobster's brother to set up a meeting, and the mobster's like, put my brother on the phone. Denzel Washington hands his cell phone to the brother and immediately blows off the brother's other hand with a shotgun. <laughs> Takes the phone back and goes, yeah, that's him. <laughs> you heard him. Uh, it's fucking great because it's just so fucking mean the stuff he does yeah. to terrible people I, you know i didn't see the equalizer but i'm now tempted to go back and watch i'm to go back and watch it even though it's not required reading for for vigilante stories but i gotta say for many years denzel washington was my punisher oh. that was my punisher movie that was as close as you got because yeah. when it comes to the punisher i think the the tom jane movie had too much so of- man on fire is is the, as a Punisher movie, for basically, example. yes, okay, All basically. Right. For many years, the Tom, the problem with the Tom Jane one is there's too much time with him as Frank Castle, not enough time as with the Punisher, and the Punisher is a person who has burned away all of the human parts of his life and all he has is a single purpose. He has Jason Voorhees on organized crime, right? And Denzel Washington is that guy, and he, you do not want to fucking get in his way. <laughs> Because he will fuck you I, up. I kind I kind of like the Punisher for that. You know, yeah. here's the thing about the Punisher that uh, this is why the char- the crazy character in Men on Fire works in a way that the Punisher character in uh, that never really works is the crazy character has alcohol to take care of that part of him that has to die for him to be that other guy, right? Oh, crazy! In the, in the I, I, his I, name is Crazy. Okay, I thought you were talking about a crazy guy. He's also crazy. Okay, he's also that too. It's it's a double duty thing. Yeah, fair enough. But I mean, for him to kill off the the remaining parts of him that have oh my god, it's are, got Christopher Walken in it. It does. Have it Christopher does. Walken Christopher in Walken is his commanding officer and his hype man. Yeah. Um, the uh, for but you know, the alcohol has to serve Sounds the role awesome. to to kill off. The human parts of him, so he can, for the rest of the time, he can just be like the cold robotic killing machine. And in Punisher, he doesn't really have that, right? Yeah. I guess, I guess for Punisher, that is re- continually reliving the memory of. So his I'm getting the sense dying, that Denzel Washington uh, used to murder people for the government because then you're allowed. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and then now drinks a lot and murders people that he doesn't like. That's basically what he does. Well, he was a bodyguard. Yeah, he's a bodyguard. Okay. He's, he's a guy who. Isn't I, allowed to kill anymore, and he's sort of kind of broken by the stuff that he's said and done. Mm. He's kind of like resigned himself to this notion that there is no salvation for people like me. I've gone too far. But the only good thing I can do in my life is get rid of these worse people. Do you remember not the movie, but the uh, the comic book read? No, I've Warren actually Ellis? not read it. I've heard good things though. Yeah, because it's Warren Ellis. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of this, uh, and, and and that's that's. I find no flaw with this story you are telling me. I may have to go watch this. It's well worth checking out. Sounds like out. it's got a lot of fuck yes moments. It's full of fuck yes moments. <laughs> it is almost nothing but fuck yes moments. And what I love is that they don't really show him as a killer for the first 45 minutes. It's all about building his relationship with this little girl, building it up. And you know that this is what the movie's about. So right. it adds that little undercurrent of tension under it. But it takes the time to make the investment actual before the payoff. Then. Yeah, that you have to see him make his full transformation before it snaps shut. <laughs> and it has to make you feel as broken. You like, uh, uh, is that... I never okay because the thing is, you, last week you were here. You told me about John Wick again. Oh and, yeah, uh, John Wick very does similar it too. move, very similar kind of theme there. But is that is that just vigilante movies, or is this specifically a genre that you like? I know Greg Hatcher, our good friend, was talking about the two kinds of character growth in the vigilante movie. There's the good guy who has to learn to be terrible, and then there's things like John Wick and Man on Fire, which is a guy who was a monster who stopped being a monster and must be a monster again. Okay. And uh, I think that both of these movies have that vibe where you have a guy that you have to fully sell that relationship. You have to sell that thing that he has, and you have to sell how valuable it is to him and how it's his kind of his oxygen. Yeah. And then you have to have somebody cruelly take it away. And like like we said in that episode, it's all about making you feel that so that you as the audience can justify watching and him doing these terrible fucking things. Mm -hmm. And if you can go there... You can go there, and you're good. Um, Red Red is uh, a retired killer for the government who uh, who is retired, lives in a house, just wants to be left alone. New presidential administration comes in, is taken to the secret room where all the secret files are, and realize that they've got people like this still alive, and decide and they go, well, we need to fix that, and uh, that's what it's about. That's the setup. 
and it's only like three or four like issues, I suppose. It's not it's not a very long it's it's, it's a short comic book. It's like one trade. It it does what it needs to do and it ends. Yeah. Which is which is great. And I, I love stories that are able to do that. It reminds me a little bit are you familiar with a movie called Shoot 'em Up? No. Never seen it. I know what it is, but never oh, seen it. Oh God. I Clive think- Owen? Clive Owen yeah. okay. uh, plays a guy, I think his name's Smith, and that's only in the script. They don't actually say his name. Oh, wait, you were telling me about this last week yes. uh, with the carrots. The carrots. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> you have to uh, tell Sam me. knows what I'm talking about. I'm going to tell you, Casey. <laughs> so uh, this movie starts out, Clive Owen is just a dude eating a carrot, sitting at a bus stop, and a crying pregnant woman runs by being chased by a couple of guys with guns. And that doesn't look right. <laughs> so he gets up and follows her into a warehouse and ends up getting into a gun battle while delivering her baby. <laughs> Kills the bad guys. She dies in childbirth. And now he has this baby. And it's a little cute moment where he's on the bus and he takes one of his socks off and puts it on the baby's head like a hat. <laughs> um, and he's got this baby that these guys with guns keep showing up trying to murder or take. And... Um, they want to kill this baby. You don't let people kill a baby. Right. So he's just murdering these guys, and he really has no interest in what their agenda is, just in stopping them from killing the baby. And they're, the bad guys are led by the lead henchman, the, lane, uh, the main Paul bad guy. Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti, yeah, yeah. who is essentially Elmer Fudd in <laughs> the Bugs Bunny cartoons. And he is this angry, sad sack guy who has a hunting rifle, who's always on the phone with his wife, you get the impression that his marriage is falling apart. He's trying to hold it together. She doesn't know he's a hitman. And you just see this, his marriage kind of, dis, you know, she, as far as she knows, he's on like a business trip. And his marriage is just slowly falling apart over the course of the story. And he's just endlessly frustrated by this hero who's always eating a carrot <laughs> and is always outsmarting him. And at one point, the, ba- the hero actually is fighting them in a warehouse. And he has these guns hung up like puppets. And he's in this room pulling strings, literally pulling strings, <laughs> and watching uh, camera feeds of security cameras and killing these guys remotely with guns. And then at one point, takes a carrot, shoves it into the trigger guard of an Uzi, and chucks it over a barrier. And it's spinning around and killing all these bad guys. <laughs> Chuck Jones is rolling over in his grave. Oh, I love it. just owns the fact that it's absurd, and it keeps trying to top itself. It it knows it's it's absurd. It plays itself seriously, but never too seriously. It's not pretentious, and it's just fucking fun. You don't actually learn why they're trying to kill the baby till the very end. There's like a sex scene that involves a gunfight. There's like <laughs> they're like, well, we can't do. It. It's been gone too long without having this. So he's having sex while killing bad guys. <laughs> I mean, there's just so many fucking absurd moments in this oh. movie, and it just keeps getting better and better. And I, I fucking love it. I love this movie so much. Uh, it's it's I, I don't know why I never got a chance to bring it up during the Vigilante episode, but it's really one of my favorites because it just goes, you know what? We're not watching this for the plot. <laughs> <laughs> we know the bad guys want to do this. He wants to stop the bad guys from doing that. Violence ensues. Nice. Fun violence. <laughs> Fantastic. So... Um, before we, we finish up, I do want to talk a little bit about something uh, serious that just happened, which is the death of a comic book writer and artist oh, yeah. named uh, Darwin Cook. And oh, this is, in a lot of ways, this is kind of my David Bowie. And mm, I think wow. it's one of those things where a lot of folks outside of comic books don't really have a context for this guy. He's done a lot of work for... Uh, DC, I don't think he's done any Marvel work, but he's done a lot of really cool independent work, a lot of crime stuff. And he, I would highly recommend just looking Darwin Cook up. His artwork is fucking amazing, and there's a joy in it. And there's an element of wanting to give this story a sense of life and power. He has kind of a, I guess you could say a cartoony sort of style that's reminiscent of a bit of the Batman animated series. Mm. And I can see that. He can do a lot of amazing things that he can create a story in a single panel with no words. And he announced just yesterday at the time of this recording, the his website announced that he was actually battling um, a very aggressive form of cancer. And 
just today, the the very next day, uh, it was announced that he had died. Well, the, the announcement, if I remember right, was that he had a very aggressive form of cancer and was in palliative care. Yeah, yeah. which is that's that's not a good thing. No, it's the sense that you're not actually you're fighting not the you're not fighting the cancer. You're fighting the symptoms. Right. That you're you're trying to make yourself comfortable, and I had hoped against hope that that meant that he had just finished maybe a battery of really aggressive treatments, and he was just trying to relax from that and maybe recover from recovery. Right. And it it was not to be. Um, so, Mike, was this an artist that you had been following for a long time since you were a kid? Not since I was a kid, but definitely since my early nineteen, my early twenties, almost nineteen twenties, but. <laughs> I, I have been following his work for a while. Um, I first really discovered his work through a series he had called DC New Frontier, mm. which was all about taking the silver and golden age characters of DC Comics and putting them in an actual historical context that it takes place between the late 30s and the early 1960s. Mm. And, you know, the times at which they were actually created. And he is so good at creating worlds that are period pieces. Uh, he really thrives in doing stories that take place in the 1960s. Yeah, he he his deco, the deco, it seems like, has very much affected his work, like a Fleischman, like a Max Fleischman sort of aesthetic. Yeah. Do, do you get that? Yeah. there's a If you read it, my, I think it was his real passion project that he'd been working on for the past seven years or so, which was uh, adaptations of crime novels by Richard Stark, the Parker series. Mm, mm. And he did adaptations of four of those books, and they are fucking incredible. Mm. Um, I, I really you can see in that, that that sort of aesthetic, that 1960s Mad Men kind of vibe and mm. the, the way the cars look, the way advertising looks, the way signs look. He had an amazing gift for creating worlds and creating tone and creating something that I think, especially in modern DC comics, not to shit on them and talking about how wonderful this guy is, but something they were really lacking. And he did a series of, of alternate covers for uh, DC comics for one month. I think he did 20 something covers and I highly recommend looking them up. They're incredible. If you want to see the Teen Titans as a rock band, <laughs> if you want to see Batman and Robin battling bad guys as Robin is throwing gas grenades out of the Batmobile, you want to see Wonder Woman battling Minotaurs and swinging one of them around by her lasso and knocking him through this like stone, like marble pillar. I mean, it's just incredible. Um, his work is singular. And I know that that word mm. is something that it's sort of implied that everyone is sort of amazing, but he's really up there with greats like Jack Kirby and Will Eisner. Wow. And it's it's such a crime that we're not only robbed of him as a person, and everything I've heard about this guy is that he's just incredibly cool. Mm. He's a wonderful guy to work with, that he's awesome on panels and at conventions, that he's incredibly kind and gracious. And... We're also robbed of the work that he would have continued to do. He was only 53 years old. Uh, wow. So he was still in the prime of his work. He was still doing amazing stuff. And it, it makes me sad that the last new stuff I read of him is now going to be his very last. Hmm. And he, he brought a joy to these characters that I think is frequently lost on the companies that own them. Hmm. That's uh, been a major... That's been a major complaint of yours for comics for a while now. It is, has been. is sort of the lack of joy in them. That I think the DC especially has been kind of caught up in the mentality of the 1990s, which is that there's a desperate need to be taken seriously by taking things out of it that are are whimsical or fun and replacing it with over-serious, over-darkness, uh, pretentious, but ultimately empty spectacle. Right. And it's like they, they looked at things like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns and took out the things about them that made them unique and made them art and just took all of the superficial aspects and just tried to hit Control-X, Control-V, Control-V, Control-V over and over again. <laughs> and it's a shame. It really is a shame and that occasionally a guy like Darwin Cook would show up and show you motherfuckers how it's done. <laughs> and with a with a, a the, with a spread with uh, Supergirl and the Super Pets. Exactly. That seems to be a, a, a sort of a 
a marker that that this is this is fun comics versus serious comics is the presence of super pets. Super pets make everything better. Well, there's something that I can say of, and I, I didn't or was not actively familiar with his works until you had been talking about it over the past day, basically yeah. or, or so now is. Uh, it is he. His work does harken back to an era that's not about creating a hyper realistic, gritty um, sort of adults kind of a comic book. There is whimsy. There is uh, uh, joy in in what it is that he's created, um, and it's it's kind of like those every every one of his drawings is a is a universe is a is a masterpiece of detail uh, of detail and intent. You know, and I love it's amazing. It. I love the guy, um, and I think comic books are going to be poorer for his absence, and I hope that his influence spreads to so many more people because he's he really is a master of the craft, and um, I am saddened that I won't get to read and look at all of the awesome work he would have done because he was not done. He was, mm. was going to keep going. I think like Will Eisner, that... He was going to work until the day he died, and and apparently he did. And wow, I'm glad we got as much of him as we did. So here, here, uh, Darwin Cook, you were an artist. You were an incredible creator of a medium that frequently I didn't always felt deserved you, but <laughs> I loved it nonetheless. And I want to say thank you for sharing your your creativity and your amazing sense of just craft and vision and ability to create wonder with just lines on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing that with us. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. And they're like, I don't want to read a comic book. Those are for kids or those are for dorks or, you know, that sort of thing. So there is still a stigma with the, with the medium. I don't think it's nearly as big as it used to be, though. Yeah. I, I think that everybody in the world likes and understands what a comic is, except right. for the people in the direct market. Right. <laughs> Honest to God. <laughs> now, no, case in point, I'm, I'm going to prove my point right here, right now. They do a movie called Batman Begins. Huge success. Which, by the way, was done all by English people. No friggin' Americans involved, right? Huge success. So they gear up for a sequel. Well, lo and behold, the villain in the sequel dies. There's Oscar talk. The movie's being hyped and hyped and hyped. So DC's reaction? Let's kill Bruce Wayne. So anyone coming in off the movie to buy a Batman comic won't know what the fuck is going on. Right. That explains it all to me. Yeah. You know? Uh, there's... It's it's so trapped within itself. It doesn't even understand, right. you know, uh, the world outside of it or what's there. Right. You know? So being trapped inside of itself, do you think that it's inherently in trouble? Do you think that it will? I mean, how how much longer can we continue like that if they don't break out? Well, I don't know. Yeah. How long can they continue this way? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's remarkable. It astonishing to me. You know, and it, I'll ask you this question: How do you sell a million Spider-Man comics a month? I don't know. On fucking iTunes for a quarter pop. Yeah. Why do these two companies have to be dragged into this technology? Right. The whole world's there already. Right. They're, they're 10 years behind the curve, and they don't want to get in front of it. Right. Okay?